A husband cheats on his wife with her best, with her best friend. A woman, feeling she has nowhere else to turn, takes her own life. Your boss makes you mad, so you vow to get her back. A man tells a police officer a lie in an attempt to get out of a speeding ticket. You notice the neighbor's new car and turn green with envy. A woman is wronged by a friend and can't find it in herself to forgive. Your marriage is in shambles, so you file for divorce. A same-sex couple is allowed to marry or adopt children. With no recycling bin in sight, you toss your soda can into the garbage. You stub your toe and instinctively yell, God damn it. The opener fails to start the coffee early enough. <laughs> How many of the things I just listed would you consider a sin? Some, I'm sure, would be a definite yes, like the last one. Others a maybe, and many not really a sin at all, perhaps just missteps or minor transgressions, or even not a problem. This summer's sermon series is based on the book, Writing to Wake the Soul, Opening the Sacred Conversation Within, by Karen Herring. In the book, Herring talks about how to write about religious topics as a spiritual practice and from the perspective of a religious liberal. I'm quite interested in the current effort by those on the religious left to reclaim some of the words we've allowed to be co-opted by the religious right. So the idea of this book intrigued me from the beginning. Words such as worship, faith, prayer, redemption, and sin often cause many of us to recoil due to the negative connotation we've allowed to become attached to them. I believe it is time to reclaim some of these words and help redefine them for the world we live in today. When the book was chosen, I quickly picked sin as my topic of choice. I thought this would be an interesting topic to explore from a Unitarian Universalist perspective. And besides, let's be honest, in the eyes of a large portion of the world's population, I'm a sinner and I'm going to hell. I won't go into the various reasons, I'll leave that for your imagination, but clearly it's a topic I'm quite familiar with and this should be a piece of cake. And then I read the book. We are constantly surrounded by or committing what some people perceive as sins. Our interpretation of what is and isn't a sin is heavily influenced by not only our religion, but our political beliefs, our background and upbringing, and even those we choose to associate with. For many in the world, these sins or transgressions against God spell at best a need to atone or confess, and at worst, a one-way trip straight to hell. Unitarian Universalists aren't really into the idea of confessing for sins, and most of us don't buy into the notion of a hell where people are sent to think about what they've done for all eternity. So how do we have any room for sin in our theology? Is there any way this concept can help us to be better people, live better lives, and make the world a better place? I think the answer is maybe. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines sin as an offense against religious or moral law or a transgression of the law of God. Sin is defined by the major religions of the world, and some of them, in fact, defined differently by the major religions of the world, and some of them, in fact, don't believe in the concept at all. 
I learned from the book that in the Hebrew scriptures, Mosaic law identifies 613 behaviors defining the difference between sinful and honorable living, of which 248 are honorable and 365 are prohibited activities or behaviors. Among these are the requirement that non-virgin brides be stoned to death and some very helpful information on how a master may go about beating his slaves. We also have the Ten Commandments, which prohibit such things as adultery and covetousness. There's some good advice in there, actually. The great Hindi leader, Mohandas Gandhi, created a list called the Seven Blunders of the World, kind of a Hindu version of sin. This is one I can get behind a little bit better. He cautions us against wealth without work, silence without humanity, and politics without principle, among others. And the Buddhists, well, they don't really have sin at all. They believe in evil, but they don't sentence people to hell. This is probably why I've always been drawn to Buddhism. Throughout history, the fear of sinning and going to hell has been used as a powerful and very effective tool to control the masses and support the status quo. These concepts have been used to oppress minorities, such as women, slaves, people of color, and different sexual orientations. Even other species and nature itself have been devastated by these harsh and unforgiving views of sin. The results have been, simply put, catastrophic. We have been driven away from each other and from nature. In the book, Karen Herring writes, 20th century theologian Paul Tillich warned against using the word sin in the plural at all. He said we get distracted when we define sin as individual actions and suggested that we consider it with a capital S, regarding it as the condition or state of being that precedes any action we might label as sinful. The root word of sin, he pointed out, may be linked to the root word, the root of the word asunder, meaning that the sinful state or the condition that causes sin is best understood as a separation from God, or in other words, our alienation from the sacred ground of our being. I find this concept very interesting. So the action I take is not necessarily sinful in and of itself. What is sinful is my, is my failure to have a connection to my personal God or higher power, or simply to fail to recognize the innate sacredness of my being. For us Unitarian Universalists, I think this idea closely relates to our belief that every creature is endowed with inherent worth and dignity. Our failure to recognize this worth and dignity in ourselves is what leads us into this so-called sinful state of being. Herring further writes, when we think of sin in the plural, naming and counting its many variations, we quickly discover the reason for Tillich's warning. Definitions of sin change over time, giving rise to both conflicting interpretations and countless schisms in doctrine and in practice. Theologian Sally McFaig adds, sin and evil are not static concepts. I certainly believe this to be true, and I imagine most of you do too. At one point, 
divorce, and wearing clothing woven of two kinds of material were considered sin. Today, most of the world would consider these perfectly acceptable. In biblical times, slavery was perfectly okay. But today, it is definitely considered a sin, and thankfully so. As the world has evolved, so has our definition of acceptable behavior. We have seen this with our own eyes regarding interracial marriage and today's same-sex marriage. Instead of focusing on these individual sins, Herring suggests a few different types of these larger capital S sins that may be the root of our current discord. Some of these really resonated with me, especially her concepts of the hardening of the heart and the fall from belonging being the root cause of sin. John O'Donohue wrote, there are times when life seems little more than a matter of struggle and endurance, when difficulty and disappointment form a crust around the heart because it can hurt deeply, because it can deeply hurt, the heart hardens. Have you ever been hurt, been so hurt by someone, felt so dejected, so disappointed, and so tired that you vowed never to let anyone hurt you again? Have you ever judged so harshly that you became unable to see past the surface into what might really be going on? In the Bible, this condition is referred to as the condition of a hardened heart. In committing this sin, we are closing our eyes and ears to one another and to our connection to each other and the interdependent web of which we are a part. In our efforts to ensure that no one can hurt us again or that we aren't taken advantage of, we form a tough shell around our hearts and allow our connections to slowly fall away. It is this condition that allows us to walk past those who are suffering and not give a second glance or thought. It is this condition that allows us to decide that we are not going to donate food because there was a Mercedes parked out front of the Interfaith Food Bank or to resist the homeless shelter or halfway house being built because it might hurt our property value. The hardening of our hearts allows us to turn our backs on one another, and in doing so, we turn our backs on ourselves. When our hearts are hardened, we not only cannot allow love in, but we cannot send it out either. Our spiritual connection to others is broken, and we become unable to see the beauty inherent in the world and in each other. My friends, I am very guilty of this sin. There have been times in my life when it was clear to me that it would be much easier to just turn my back on everyone and everything and pull away into my own shell. I have been so hurt that the thought of letting people in was so frightening, I couldn't even contemplate where to begin. There have been times when I have done such an effective job of building a wall around my heart and feelings that I've had to seek professional help to tear it down. So the wall story was actually quite fitting for this too, and she did not know. Um, I've actually fallen into this trap more than once. But yet, hard as it may be to tear down the walls that protect my or your hearts, we must. Figuring out how to let go of past hurts and move on is hard, 
but life is better when you embrace it with open arms and an open heart. The hardened heart leads to what I might, and Herring does, consider actually the ultimate sin, the fall from belonging. Humans are social animals. We long to be together and to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We long to belong. We are not meant to be alone. To me, it feels like, even though we have knowledge of the, the knowledge of the entire human race at our fingertips, and we can reach one another at the tap of a finger, we are sadly less connected than we have ever been. We don't talk on the phone, we text. We don't visit, we Skype. We don't have time to be involved in each other's lives, so we keep things peripheral. In the book, Herring writes, for unless we have first felt a deep sense of belonging, wholly unearned by anything we have done or claimed or purchased, we will not be able to recognize the most substantial consequences of sin and alienation. Which is to say, if we have not experienced that kind of belonging, we actually may not know sin when we see it. One condition of sin common today is the way many of us have of convincing ourselves that we do not belong. It's only natural that at times we feel like we don't belong. I think it happens to all of us occasionally. We all have bad days, weeks, years, decades. But when that feeling takes hold and becomes pervasive, our worldview becomes skewed and our ability to see right from wrong is curtailed. It is through belonging that we realize our own worth, and it is through falling from belonging that we enter the state of sin that Herring talks about. The state where our moral compass goes haywire and our ability to reason and see right from wrong evaporates. This state is where people become able to commit the most heinous crimes and think nothing of it. This state is where evil resides. Once again, you can count me as guilty. Many of you have heard the story of the first time I visited this community about 13 years ago. I had been going through a rough patch, and a friend suggested I try out Unitarian Universalism. So on a beautiful Sunday morning in the spring, I found my way here, and it was horrible. The people were unwelcoming, perhaps even standoffish and rude. It was quite clear that no one wanted me, so I left. It took a while and some help, but eventually I figured out that you people were not actually the problem. It was me. I was the one who made me feel like I didn't belong. I had done such a fantastic job of segregating myself that I didn't need your help. Today, I will admit I was wrong, and thankfully I had the wisdom to give this place a second chance. I really don't know where I'd be today without this community and all of you. So I speak from experience when I say that when we allow our hearts to harden and ourselves to fall from belonging, we not only lose our self-worth, but we become unable to see the worth of those around us. We become unable to see the beauty of the earth and the joy in being together. 
It is in this dark place that our conscience, or as a good friend put it recently, our Jiminy Cricket, goes silent and we lose the ability to reason and make rational decisions. So what can we do? Most of this is very simple, but I think we can always use a reminder and maybe now we can look at this in a different way. As individuals, we must resist the call to selfishness. Sally McFaig, which Sally McFaig calls potentially the one word definition of sin for us first world types. We can resist gossip. It does far more harm than we realize and further segregates our already fragmented society. We must resist the urge to be judgmental. We most likely don't know the whole story, and even if we think we do, don't judge anyway. It's not your job or your business or mine. And resist negativity. This is a hard one for me, but I'm trying. We need to remind ourselves of all the good in our lives and our world and all the powerful and all the wonderful things we have in common. Give someone a hug. Not only will it keep your heart from hardening, it will remind everyone involved that they belong, including you. Besides, you never know when their last hug was or when the next one might come along, and something as simple as a hug just might save someone's life. Admit when we need help and be willing to accept help when it's offered. And we can, as we heard in our reading earlier, choose to walk toward evil. Don't turn a blind eye. Go where we are needed and help those who need us. As a community, we've already begun to make the world brighter simply by being here together this morning with open minds and open hearts. We all belong. We can continue to endeavor to ensure that all who enter these doors find a welcoming atmosphere and a warm smile to greet them. We need not know where they come from, where their journey might be heading, or how long they might be staying. We simply need to recognize that they are here and that is enough, and we must welcome them into our circle. We must make every single person who walks through these doors feel that they are wanted and needed here and that this is exactly where they belong. We must strive to resist division and separation into unnecessary camps. We are all here for the same purpose, making the world a better place, and that should be our only motivation. And we must be willing to lean on each other when we need a hand. We are far stronger together than we are as individuals. And perhaps, most importantly, never stop listening to your conscience. As we all know, when Pinocchio stopped listening to Jiminy Cricket, all kinds of trouble began. Blessed be, and amen. <laughs>